everyone. This is the second season of I Hope This Message Finds You Well, a podcast on curating. My name is Eloise Sweetman and with me is my friend and colleague Chris Dittor. In this podcast, we talk to curators about their approach to curating, how they began and what they love about the profession. Today's episode is with Sophia Lemos. Sophia Lemos is a curator and writer. She's curator at TBA 21. From 2018 to 21, she was curator of public programs and research at Nottingham Contemporary, where she led the partnership between the University of Nottingham and Nottingham Trent University, and was associate editor of the Contemporary Journal. She also initiated numerous collaborative research programs, including the multi-platform commissioning series Sonic Continuum and reading series Five Bodies. We could begin with a very basic question, like what led you to curating and and also how do you define your practice as as such? Well, I I begin, uh, so my background is law and political science. I've studied uh, humanities for, um, yeah, within my academic trajectory. And I've always had an inclination towards cultural, cultural diplomacy, becoming a cultural attaché. That was sort of the trajectory that I was pursuing. But somehow I felt very disenchanted with politics and with the substance of of doing political work that is institutionalized and uh, recognized within uh, party structures. And equally became quite um, concerned with the kind of rhetoric and narrative that was built around uh, human rights organizations and human rights in in general, how cosmopolitics was being kind of, is still understood as a political project that is almost ahistorical and um, there's very little criticism uh, that was happening from a kind of mainstream, let's put it this way, academic context. And of course, if you move into a kind of post-colonial, into post-colonial scholarship, there's much more of that. But at that time, I didn't really have access to those resources and to those uh, references. And uh, and I was very connected to radical left groups back then. And I remember when I was 19, I, uh, I was traveling to Barcelona to visit some um, squatter anarchist friends and we were just hanging out in front of Marpa, the contemporary art museum in Barcelona and someone gave me the um, the Spanish translate the, the, the Spanish or- original of Pobreciados Testo Janki and, uh, and they said you, you, you must read this 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 will change your view <laughs> on life and uh, and I said okay and he did, in fact. So uh, a year after, I moved to Madrid to finish my degree in political science there. And Preciado was teaching or had a series of lectures that was running at the Reina Sofia in, uh, in Madrid. And it was a really, that was a really interesting moment because we're talking about 
I guess 2011, around the time of the Arab Spring, Spain was living a very strong movement against austerity measures for occupying the, the, the squares and the streets before the Occupy movement really took place and took hold in the U.S. People were engaging with nonviolence and uh, some direct action, particularly in Catalonia, but there was a lot of reading, a lot of sharing, a lot of mutual aid and solidarity that was happening on the streets, and out of which a political party ended up being formed that is in coalition at this moment, Podemos. Spain is very different today, 10 years later, incredibly different. We can get to that at another point, but it was it was a period of hope. There was, you know, possibility was, was concrete, was actual. And so... Yeah, it was it was uh, incredible to spend uh, to spend time in in Madrid, and afterwards I finished my degree and moved to Barcelona to study with Preciado at Parque, at the Independent Studies program that was that had already a, a few years of trajectory. It intended to be the sort of uh, Latin cousin of the <laughs> Whitney Independent Studies program, and it was happening, you know, under the uh, under the umbrella of the museum but very much as a, as a critical space of it, of its operations, of its governance, of its forms of exhibition making, of the exhibitionary complex, and questioning really the relationship between the museum and public space. And of course, you know, out of, you know, we were a group of really different people with very different trajectories. Most, I think the vast majority was coming from uh, Latin America with a very strong uh, decolonial, post-colonial kind of background, a lot of feminist activism, some people connected to contemporary art, some, or visual arts, some didn't. I, I, was, I clearly did not have any <laughs> connection back, back then. And as part of the degree, we were invited to participate in kind of a, a collective project or several different projects that would either take place, you know, with the, the local association of sex workers, with the local association of Bangladeshi migrants, or with uh, a particular archive, um, and so on. And I began working with, at that point, with Art and Language, a conceptual um, British group, which now is uh, essentially run by uh, Michael Baldwin and Mel Remsen, but during the 1970s, it had a very sort of large constituency. And, and so I began, I spent one year and a half <laughs> within their archives. And that led me to a kind of understanding, not only of the place and the site that I was inhabiting. So the museum is this critical place where we're discussing the political, but also of artistic practice as a site of confrontation between ideas, between positions, positionalities a critique of representation, which for me felt very much like a vivid response to the concerns that I had with regards to the work in NGOs and all this kind of human rights connected labor. Yeah, so I ended up, yeah, never leaving the museum space after that. And, and that's how the trajectory began. So it was really in the museum space that, that you started yes. working. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I've since... I've sort of kept mostly institutional positions. Well, mo most of my freelance work is writing. I do some independent projects, but I'm really sort of, perhaps because of my background, I have a deep belief that 
public museums still I'm deeply critical of the historical model and of arts institutional development, but also a deep believer in their potential to open up conversations and uh, open up dialogues that are perhaps yeah, difficult to bring to public space and to public discourse in any other means or forms. And so that immediate encounter with an aesthetic experience, an immediate encounter with an idea, and the kinds of afterlives of an event and the afterlives of, of that encounter. It's something that I'm, I've been fascinated by for the longest, yeah. Mm. So interesting because I recall now reading the description of some of your projects and what kind of transpired to me that there was a deep belief in art and art's capacity to kind of disrupt or challenge or act as a kind of witness in certain societal issues. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. How do you think about art's role in regards to societal issues? The case of this hopefulness that I heard in the tone of your writing. I, I suppose, you know, we've come, because of this, of arts institutional development, as a, as a form of cosmology and cosmogony that is devoided of its own sense of creation when it enters the institutional space. I mean, this is, of course, I'm very happy to have a conversation, uh, a more detailed conversation about this because I think that it performs differently in different spaces. But I think this fundamental uh, capacity for, for vitality, for sort of creating spaces for asking complex questions, for uh, a profound space for, for reflection, for, yeah, sort of transversing the ecstatic energy of, of the universe into, into a space that can be world-building, right? That is often very violently altered uh, or halted within, um, within the, the, the public museum, which is an institution that in its essence and its uh, genesis is created to educate and democratize a particular view of art towards an audience that is a kind of liberal, modern, uh, property legal rights holder image of men, and to sort of propagate that within a kind of bourgeois nation state and in Europe and its colonies, right? So whilst it, it has the civilizational mission, the museum, the work of the artist and the artwork itself still could have struggled against this, uh, yeah, this, 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 the animation that happens when art enters a space that is not meant for hosting life, is meant for hosting objects, for, it's not meant for hosting vital cultural practices, for understanding also the, the multi-dimension, non-linear, somewhat sometimes circular timelines and timeframes that cultural practice and artistic practice work with. So there is, I think that there is a constant struggle, there is a constant friction. I think the modern museum has essentially served as a space of, of, of alienation, of course, between the self and this sort of cosmogonic or cosmological potential. And, and I'm interested in this position as a curator, I'm interested in the, the position of, of being a mediator between these different histories, between the work of an artist 
and the structures of an institution, the governance of an institution. And sort of, in a way, it feels very diplomatic sometimes. We can imagine that. But I think that space of, I'm perhaps more interested in, in the word remediation rather than, than mediation, that space of remediating between two very seemingly disparate forms of relating to art and its potential, you know, building bridges, or, you know, better said, bridging divides and building connections between these two, and also between the modes of experience, right? Um, because in a lot of ways, well, what the what this sort of modern civilizational narrative has created is a particular form of representation that fails to acknowledge experience and that fails to acknowledge the, the many dimensions of life. So oftentimes you enter a gallery space, a museum space, and it appeals to the intellect, it may appeal to the senses. Lucky, if, you're, if, if we're lucky enough, it appeals to both, but it rarely appeals to a third dimension of the spiritual, for example. And a lot of times this is really when we're impacted with a very strong aesthetic experience. You know, you can sort of extrapolate this into a kind of an experience of the sublime, but even in a more modest, humble proposition, when, you, when, you, when that experience sort of consumes you, right, and you feel that the ecstasy of, of, of that experience, be it in uh, profound melancholy or sadness or in a, a large degree of hope, and, and optimism and inspiration and, you know, you're fulfilling a kind of need, a very human need for beauty, a very human need for spiritual connection. And oftentimes we, we, we tend to forget that the spiritual is also part of it, right? So for me, I'm interested in this idea of remediating between the intellect, the senses and, and the spiritual. So a lot of my practice, I would say, has to do with this, with uh, creating spaces for scholarly, spiritual, and sensorial approaches. And that's perhaps a way of, of also not falling into, in, into a kind of nihilistic existential <laughs> crisis about the material cosmological terms of this reality principle that says that there's no other possibility of life, right? There's no other possibility outside of the commodity form. Yeah, so I suppose that's 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 how I would articulate a kind of more hopeful approach to to artistic practice and curatorial practice. You were mentioning just earlier about the kind of after effect or the afterlife of the like the connection of an audience to like a fragment of conversation or and I, I wondered how I mean, perhaps this is a rather boring question, but how did you manage with the current situation of the pandemic where I assume many of your projects were really before in the physical and then there was this, then you're um, kind of hosting many events online and, and I, but I, from what I was in my research, I could see that you were really able to like generate a very like wonderful conversations between poets, for example. But how did you feel about the 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 kind of the loss of the presence of the audience? I, I think I was very shocked by the affirmation of of you know a fundamental modern 
binary and the, the Cartesian dualism of the, you know, where a mind is sort of shuttling between screens and realities and time zones and spaces while the body strapped onto this chair, right? And particularly over the spring and summer of last year, 2020, where I was associate curator for the for the Riga Biennial and uh, Riboka too. At this point, we had imagined, so I had imagined a 21-week-long public program that was, as I mentioned, you know, sort of remediating between these different forms of experience. And it was quite intense. It was every day there were forms of uh, culinary degustation, there were (laughs) somatic practices, there were spiritual practices, there were invocation, real uh, ritual, poetry, all kinds of things. And of course, then the, the, the more the more typical intellectual uh, discussion, which I, I find a lot of pleasure in as well. And while this, you know, whilst all of this had to be reframed, the the biennial itself, so the exhibition itself, we had to reframe it because we the biennial was one of the first ones to open in a sequence of them last year. It was early May, the opening date. So we had essentially one month and a half to kind of shift everything around, have conversations with the artists and really take on like the unexpected and um, the undeterminate role of COVID as a co-curator into into serious consideration, right? So the chief curator had this wonderful idea of turning the exhibition into a film set and creating a feature-length film out of the out of this experience. Uh, for which I was mostly contributing with with a script and all of us kind of rethinking, you know, what's going to be the role of the exhibit of the architecture of the exhibition, right? We no longer need beautifully conditioned white walls in a decommissioned port in a in a in a post-Soviet kind of landscape. Let's take this into into in, into serious consideration and also be playful with it, right? You know what. What else? <laughs> and over the course of that, of those few months, one of the, the immediate things that we had to do was, okay, we cannot, we cannot create these experiences that appeal to, to the senses of the spiritual. Let's focus on, uh, on, on, on having conversations that accompany this trajectory over time. And so we created this 21-week-long uh, online series of talks and conversations where essentially every single week of those 21 weeks, I was online in conversation with a scholar, a thinker, a poet, but mostly scholars and thinkers. And it ended up being a very interesting experience because it became a living archive of the moment, right? So at the same time that we're living through the experience, we're thinking through it, right? So with and through COVID. But at the same time, you know, I was literally in front of my screen for endless amount of time as a lot of us <laughs> were but I didn't have the opportunity to take it out to the streets and that was something that I was really struggling with because a lot of the things that I'm discussing is exactly what is happening outside of my window and the kinds of questions that um, or trajectories that I have been personally involved with for many years and so that felt like a, a great disconnection and uh, and at times uh, uh, yeah, a concern between the kind of 
honesty and accountability of intellectual work with the, the physical motion, the activation, the mobilization that it requires. At the same time, so I remember that the second talk that I did for that series was with Sophie Lewis, and uh, Sophie Lewis is an amazing... Uh, she, be, she begins her academic trajectory as a Marxist geographer and moves into studying uh, forms of, uh, of, of surrogacy within certain populations and begins writing. She also does a master's in environmental humanities and brings everything together into this sort of feminist critique. And she's one of the most interesting, I think, so at this moment in time, queer and feminist thinkers with radical propositions um, around reproductive justice. And, and she really comes with this lineage as well of uh, utopian mode of critique that I really appreciate. And maybe we can get into utopia at some point in the conversation. But uh, we were having this, 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 this talk online and I've worked with Sophie before. And, uh, and she had recently lost her mom. So the talk uh, was very much around uh, the idea of griefing, of creating spaces for lamenting in common, for holding hands and holding space for, for grief at a time where so many lives still are being lost. But at that point, we're only kind of coming to terms with it without the space for actually coming to terms with the loss. And that was an, a, a very strange, a very, very strange conversation because you cannot hold the person. You cannot, you know, a sympathetic look doesn't translate in the same way. There's no space for the engagement of an audience that would otherwise uh, have a, a more receptive approach that is not this uh, kind of... Um, yeah, representational approach to language, right? It's, it's, it's not, not only language that is registering at that point. This has a lot to do with the kinds of public programs that I'm interested in, in doing and have been doing for uh, a few years now. A lot of the, I, I play around with the architecture of the space. I'm, I'm much more of a live programs person rather than an exhibition maker. So I'm really interested in playing around the space, with the lighting, with, um, with smell in the space as well, creating yeah, spaces of, for hosting beyond the kind of um, traditional divide of an audience and a speaker, the sort of adversarial relationship that oftentimes really stru structures our ways of listening. So I'm interested in how the public program can create spaces for listening that are not the usual, you know, problem-solving, task-oriented uh, ways of listening that we come with, and we come with to institutional spaces. This is a product of an individualist culture, yeah, of an individualist culture, capitalist culture that we've been socialized and educated in and creating spaces for, for empathetic listening, for authentic listening. And uh, a lot of the work that I do also has to do with decentralizing and denaturalizing the ear and thinking that the listening happens through the body, through vibration, through, through frequency. And that frequency, a lot of times, depending on the kind of philosophical trajectory that we would like to follow, but it creates a spirit of conversation, right? So you have these many frequencies that are registering differently for each person in the audience. And what happens at that particular moment in time 
it's unique. It will never be repeated. Right? The 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 exchange of energy is 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 present. And this full presence of an audience, of a speaker, of a performer, of a poet is what I am interested in drawing out and teasing out in, in public programs. Mm. I was a little bit caught on what you t said about listening and the sound, also because I think we have a couple of overlapping interests in our work. I come more from the angle of the voice, and the way I think about the voice is also this idea of the present, because even if you record a voice, it always exists in the present. It kind of ground, gra grounds you in the now, and it can only touch you in that very moment. And, but I'm also interested in um, your relationship to language and text, which on one hand relates to your uh, role as someone who is mediating or remediating situations, which I imagine happens a lot of times through language, but also you touched upon this, the way you create certain environments uh, is very important. But I myself think a lot about my I, tr I have my troubles with language and I want to work from that kind of complications of language. And I wonder how, what role writing, language, editing, I kind of want to open up this question a little bit, <laughs> plays in your practice. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's a really good question. The, I think the role of language is, um, it's the most difficult to undo because we are constantly trapped in the linguistic structures that organize our reality, right? And I'm a very close reader of uh, Federico Campagna, an Italian, well, Sicilian philosopher based in London, around his ideas of the ineffable, that which is inexpressible, and the ways in which we might be able to, again, remediate a gap between action and imagination, essence and existence, through creating dispositions, subtle bodies that can help us access that dimension of the ineffable that always go, goes beyond linguistic representation. And of course, writing, you know, is a, is, a, is a technology of recording and thinking, feeling, perceiving, knowing into a mode that is reproducible, that is, which is very good, you know, how, how fortunate are we that, to, that we're able to, to read incredible ideas that have been floating around for centuries and millennia, really. But I suppose what language does is, in a way, it creates, it creates a kind of identity within things, an indexical and concatenated way of speaking that acknowledges reality for what it is, um, what it is right here, right now. This class is this class with water filled halfway and is not capable of expressing that perhaps this glass is only as if it acts as a glass in the world. And this is one of the one of the reasons why I think I'm so attracted to poetry and and such a devotional reader of, of poetry because it has this potential of creating subtle bodies and and materializing ideas and and also kind of share an understanding of the world, as, uh, as Heine Maria Hilke would say, where everything is not itself. 
I'm not sure what the, these are the immediate references that are coming up to, to my mind right now. They're all male poets, but uh, <laughs> Fernando Pessoa, who's a Portuguese poet, he has a very beautiful verse, uh, not verse, uh, I can't, uh, what do you call it in, in stanza in uh, English? Yeah, where he, I think in English it goes more or less like, like this, to feel everything in every way. I'm reading the Portuguese right now and translating simultaneously to live everything from all sides, to be the same in every possible way and to realize oneself in the whole of humanity at all moments and in every possible forms. Which in one single moment that is diffuse, profuse and profound. And this, yeah, this capacity for reconnecting with what Sylvia Winter would call the mythopoetic capacity that every human has of inventing, inventing a, a, a form of life, of a mode of being and belonging that doesn't need to, that doesn't need to respond to one, po one only possible way of living. And so, for example, with the, with the Riboc again, biennial, the 21 weeks were structured around what, a, what we were calling a glossary for desirable words, uh, worlds. Pardon, no, it was not the name. It was a glossary for desirable futures. And the title was connected to a kind of larger idea that I've been sort of fostering over time that is called words for worlds. So that's the confusion. And, you know, this idea of being able to read one word in its many multiple meanings, to understand ourselves as linguistically singular and multiple, to experience the mouthful, yeah, the mouthful experience of language through poetry, I think really uh, helps us create these this dispositions. So going back to writing, editing and, and publications, um, what I try to do with editorial roles, which is a role that I really enjoy as well. So as part of my work at Nottingham Contemporary, I was editing the, the Contemporary Journal, which really had, I think, an incredible potential within the, the pandemic last year, where we launched a new issue called uh, Sonic Continuum. And the Sonic Continuum is a multi-platform research series that I've been working on for the past, I think, four years. And, and traces back to this idea of denaturalizing and de-essentializing the ear, but also making hearable certain historical eruptions that are perhaps more easier uh, heard than seen, and how visual artists are working through, working with the sonic, with sound, with language, as a way of yeah creating a counter-cartography of the sonic that hasn't had yet so much scholarship from the point of view of curatorial practice as well. So there's all these beautiful practices, um, Samson Yang, Christine Sung Kim, and many others, Levita Sibungu, I mean, I could think, think of, of many, whose practice hasn't really been read as a, as a kind of constitutive of a moment of contemporary art and contemporary art discourse that is interested in these other ways of listening, these modes of creating oral alliances, of listening out for the, the silences, the the muted, the erased, etc. So anyway, we launched the... Um, you'll notice I have this very associative thinking, so apologies if I go <laughs> many different places, because I see them all very interconnected. 
but yeah, the journal was was a, a space of reaction, but it became a space of response. So a reaction in the way that Sonic Continuum was was meant to have happened as a series, as a a multi-installment symposia series over the course of two years. And we were launching in March 2020. So obviously that didn't happen. (laughs) And the commitments that I had already with the artists and the performers and the speakers that I was working with in 2020, I wanted to honor those commitments and not have to wait for an indefinite period of time to honor payments and so on. So then I decided, okay, let's maybe begin with collaborating with the radio, take the radio broadcast, which was already part of the of the symposium series anyway, as a space of commissioning new works. Uh, so we, we do works for the radio, we do works for sort of try to engage with listening sessions through writing in the journal and uh, open the journal for another for a sharing of the, the papers, the talks that were going to happen live. So the proposition and the invitation to the, the contributors and writings were still, whilst we were working with the written format and with an online journal, to try to enact this proposition for listening. So a lot of the of the editorial work that happened was, you know, how to thread a song, a composition, a sound in in the form of writing, in the form of transcribing, in the form of, you know. It's still a conundrum that I'm going through um, because right now I'm editing an edited volume of this project with about 40 contributions and enacting the proposition of sound in a book is a really interesting conversation to have with graphic designers, with the publishers, and we're in the middle of that. But so, yes, I suppose that going back to your initial question, the relationship between language, writing, editing, and, and, and speaking, is, I, I suppose, one that enables us not to, to create an instability, right? To recognize an irreducible instability in all forms of linguistic, written, oral expression. I want to go back a little bit to what you mentioned earlier, and also it relates to my first question in regards to hope. You mentioned utopia as something you've been thinking about and also thinking with Mm -hmm. uh, Sophie Lewis' work. And I'm really shy in in claiming myself being like a utopian thinker or believer in utopia because it's such a contested word. (laughs) But... And yet, I, um, I do. I do want to believe in some sort of future that is different, and hopefully better for more, many more beings in this world. So I just wonder. I, I wonder how do you think about utopia, and maybe what is the role of art within the thinking? No, that's a beautiful question, and and I think it's an important question to be asking today. Particularly today, just because on Tuesday, <laughs> I was with Avery Gordon, who's a fantastic scholar and sociologist that's been working on forms of enslavement, confinement, incarceration for many years. And so she's really a, a huge reference in a kind of abolitionist thinking that happens as a very con- considerable and constant utopian mode of critique. And uh, for her, so her first book is called 
Haunted Futures. No, it's not called Haunted Futures. I'm so sorry. I can't remember the title of the book right now. I'm trying to look at it from uh, from here. So anyway, she has an incredible work developed around the idea of a haunted presence. And for her, she's been thinking with Ernest Bloch around utopia as, or utopian margins, as conditions of possibility that surround actuality with concrete and objective potential. And so a lot of the thinking that she's been doing and the archival work that she's unfolded, particularly with the last book, uh, The Utopian Margins or the Hawthorne Archives, is to do with this idea that the utopia is not something that is, uh, it doesn't function within the outside, inside dichotomy of margin and center. It doesn't function within a kind of lost present or lost past, possible future. So it doesn't work within the sort of linear time frame, but instead it is a mode of being and belonging to the present that is filled with possibility. And so a lot of the the kind of examples that she brought on, so one of the examples was the 1929 Vagabond Congress in Stuttgart. And so she's taking on like these forms of aesthetic aesthetic living where people choose non-reproductive, non-normative lives today as a concrete possibility of living otherwise. And and I find this, um, you know, is is a is a form of worlding that is already here. At the same time, you can look at it, you know, f- through the lens of of haunting, as something that is, you know, all of these forms of knowledge, of ways of knowing, of knowledge production that exist outside of you, outside of the canon, but that have the potential for again living otherwise. And that perhaps we need to find modes of recovering, of engaging with, and of recognizing that they are here. They're not proposing something in the future. They're not melancholic of the past, but really sort of creating a conversation with how we choose to live today. So that's on 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 the one hand, and then on the other hand, I'm very interested in also rethinking and resignifying. The, the idea of utopia because the way that we kind of read it and understand it in the West has very much to do with the kind of translation that Thomas More did from the, the classical Greek, utopia, to denote a kind of the absence of a place that can be explored by these, the empirical senses, right? However, if you turn this into Persian and Arabic expressions, there's a number of them that I'm, I, I don't want to attempt <laughs> to use my very, very uh, faulty, uh, lousy Arabic to, to read the, the, the words, but Alam al-Hital is, is one of them and that I'm very interested in, and that's the world of images and archetypal ideas. And the other one that I'm very interested in is Nakojabad, which is the land of nowhere. And all of these talk about hidden realities that turn out to envelop or surround or contain this particular reality, right? And they are places that are chartable. They're chartable, they're spiritual cartographies that one can access by practice and training. And for me, this is a very 
important one because again it, it remediates these uh, different registers and I think it responds to Gayatri Spivak's provocation of you know she says our only imperative today is to reimagine the planet with critical and transformative prospects and I think to access this space of imagination when imagination today is under assault by resurgent nationalisms, climate disruption, human rights violations, you know, toxic emissions of data <laughs> and all kinds of dualist thinking. When the imagination is under assault to such degree, we need to find practices for accessing it. And they are in these, you know, in this land of nowhere. This this is a physical space. This is as much as a physical, terrestrial, sidereal, and spiritual place, that as, as it is a form of, of connecting, right? So a lot of a lot of the Sufi and Islamic thinkers that engage this with these concepts, they talk about psycho-spiritual organs of, of perception. So the the intellect would be associated with the mind, the body would be associated with the senses, and the heart is correlated with the imagination. And accessing this imaginal space where, you, where images of, you know, prophetic knowledge, the div, uh, divination, happen as apparitions, as images that create realities. I won't get into too much detail because I can get very excited about this, but I think that you know one of the perhaps our roles as curators, as thinkers, as artists is also to understand under which circumstances certain forms of it or certain modes of utopian critique have been made possible right and my intuition is that um, it's it serves a very clear purpose to continue reifying or reproducing an idea of utopia something that is distant that is perhaps unattainable that is attainable only through modes of science fiction and sort of or escapist modes of science fiction or on the other hand, that is um, uh, that is marginal, right? And continue to marginalize these, these forms of critique. So I think in a way, for me, utopia relates a lot with meditation and contemplative practice that allows us to make good with ideas of, of the collective, of the ensemble, of existing as more than one in the world. And perhaps as well of unburdening and unbounding our hearts from, you know, the violences that weighted into inaction, ambiguity, lack of trust, of confidence in, in, in our creative potential. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're, we're at a point in time where you need to dream with your eyes open, no? And, be in a state of awareness that is conscious of the many forms of enclosure, incarceration, the many continuums, the colonial continuities, the carceral continuities that surround the present and, and, and our very lived experiences. And at the same time, we're going through this, the, the you know, resurgent nationalism and the turn into a kind of public acceptance of outright and straight up fascist discourse is is here that's very that's very that's not at the margins anymore 
that's not on the underground anymore. It is very present. And in a way, I think I find it very difficult for artistic practice or curatorial practice to engage with it from a kind of seemingly objective understanding or thematic understanding what what these movements are. My impression is that a lot of them, they are so capable and so incredibly good at recruiting new members because they offer a possibility of belonging and they offer a possibility of connection. And again, I think that this is a very basic human need, right? The need for interdependence, for spiritual communion, and just for communion in, in, in general, breaking bread. So if I, don't, I, I find that it's very difficult to talk about our unjust pasts or complicit presents or complex futures in ways that don't acknowledge that those, those very fundamental needs. And whilst I feel like in certain countries, there's a bit more that the, the left is kind of leaving. <laughs> it's, a, it's a melancholy crisis uh, or crisis of melancholia into a more active and propositional space. In certain countries, you know, what we're seeing is a very, very fast turnaround. And, you know, at the same time, you're, you're hearing sort of, you know, the art world with its buzzwords you start having an acceptance of uh, friendship and com camaraderie that didn't exist maybe three or four years ago. And those are tools, they're shared practices, they're resources for working with one another, but also for perhaps creating these uh, invitations in forms of, yeah, creating invitations for belonging. And I think for me, the role of the museum and the contemporary institution today has to do with this. It has to do with really understanding that there's 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 active humble but active propositions there are um there's work to be done there's effective labor to be done to actually bring people into the space invite people with this very disparate ideas very dissonant ideas and invite them for a form of belonging that is more capacious and more hopeful than the alternative, right? So, Boaventura de Souza Santos was a Portuguese sociologist, scholar, legal scholar, Marxist, from the Marxist tradition, and, and very connected to the decolonial movements in, in Latin America. He has this quote where he says that it is as difficult to imagine the end of capitalism and patriarchy as it is to imagine that they will have no end. And again, it goes back to this, you know, how do we cultivate our um, imaginative capacities, our creative imagination together? Well, we can, we can talk about the notion of togetherness, but uh, <laughs> how, do we open, how do we open these spaces? How do we invite people who have never been to a contemporary art museum and who furthermore have an idea of contemporary art as the enemy right as this you know when you read the political programs of uh, of these right-wing political parties and you really feel the rise of fascism when they're talking about visual arts contemporary art or other forms of artistic practices pushing a rhetoric of cultural marxism and this like push against this uh, these guys are all about cultural Marxism and they want to turn this into 
in, into communists. And, you know, that there's, it, this is a very big reduction and simplification of the, the, the basis of these political programs. But in essence, this is, this is what a lot of them are doing. They're sort of pushing the left towards a defensive stance where the left has to defend the, 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 the small victories that it has conquered up until now. And whilst they're saying, look, the left is stuck in the past, we're offering solutions forward, you know? Uh, we're offering solutions that respect the, the great history of this nation. And we have to be careful about all these forms of continuing the kind of Westphalian world order without critically questioning what, what they're doing. So I think that friendship, camaraderie, reconciliation, um, repair and remediation, they really serve an intent, an intent to, to create active, humble, grounding propositions for invitation. I always did the research on intimacy and I feel the, the way we can contribute to creating these kind of relationships within institutional structures is one of them is to form intimate relationships with others, with your audience, with your colleagues, with the people you work with. And But I wonder to what extent that is possible because I feel intimacy has its limitations in scale mm -hmm. and I wonder what say large institutions or institutions who are because I feel these relations what we were talking about happen, happen oftentimes on the margin mm -hmm. and I wonder what are the capacities then of large institutions to facilitate that because mm -hmm. this is where I feel personally where a lot of the art discourse in regards to care and togetherness falls flat and becomes a kind of topic rather than a thing because mm -hmm. uh, as one, at one point in institutional scale it's impossible to facilitate these relations and I feel like I wonder I don't have really like any statement about this but I wonder if there shouldn't be some kind of admittance that maybe these relations don't happen inside the institution but what we do with the institutions of certain scale can help to facilitate them or inspire them elsewhere Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to say some, some words about your research, Eloise? I'm uh, really curious. Uh, well, I really wouldn't call it research necessarily. It's uh, something I've explored. I'm kind of, it's never, it's not resolved. Like it's uh, mm -hmm. somehow, I don't even know how to define it. Like I don't mean it uh, in intimacy in the sense of like necessarily a human to human intimacy but more mm -hmm. in the in the in a greater sense so I'm interested in sort of like material intimacy that is like through the practice of an artist or through the site or architecture and it's something that I can never really grasp actually every exhibition I try to kind of get to it but it yeah it's uh something that's constantly growing and become kind of just out of reach but i i am in i i am interested in sort of like the atmosphere that intimacy creates actually like that or that or maybe in, uh, an atmosphere of people coming together can create an uh, intimacy so like you mentioned before scent actually and the sort of environment 
and like uh, that you create so thinking about lighting and but also the question of invitation like how how is the the body whether it's an artwork or a human or otherwise bring it, uh, coming into the space and being invited and what are the conditions of the engagement and so like for me I really think centers a big part of that so like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking at my incense burner right now which <laughs> uh, is like practically constantly uh, on in yeah. all the in, in every space of the exhibition whether it's in the studio or in the mm -hmm. exhibition space itself but it is oh, I must come and visit you <laughs> because we can sit down and smell together yeah but I think it's also intimacy is also like also like the uh, the possibility it's a possibility so like when you talk about contemplation like I feel that like being able to be quiet together as strangers for example is like deeply intimate so like being a sitting uh, in an exhibition next to somebody whilst watching a video work has a possibility of being intimate but but also like it's also none of these things at the same time like I, I find it very hard which is why I really like to explore intimacy actually because um, it's like it's never what I try to define it as but I, I do think I, I would say the program, the event program or the public program has a greater capacity for intimacy than perhaps the exhibition. And I, in my work, I really like to try and like fold them together. Like the exhibition and the public program are often the same thing because like of the atmosphere, the tactility, the bodies in the space. So uh, yeah, like how I, how do you see the public program operating, I guess? Is that, that's the question. The way that I work, I normally, I spend a lot of time reading, but I also spend a lot of time having conversations with very different people. And recently I had a conversation with a fantastic researcher who's based here at the Freie Universite, uh, University in, uh, in Berlin. Uh, his name is uh, Omar Kazmani. And, uh, and he's been uh, researching on Sufi queerness and intimacy and, um, and saintly intimacies, which is quite interesting. So immediately I'm sort of going back to his definition of intimacy, which is what happens in the unfolding of time, right? And not only of time, but it's more in the, in the labor that it requires. So he, he discusses this labor as something that changes processes of futuring and he discusses it as a form of not knowing in the present and a form of working through those circumstances or those uh, conditions and this is of course we were talking about uh, queer kin making in <laughs> in spiritual communities of uh, a particular ascetic community um, of fakirs but I think that it's, it, it has a very, a very interesting potential also removed from, from this uh, religious and spiritual context. And when you think, for example, Hazel Carby's notion of imperial intimacies, you know, those, those processes of coloniality that are continued through essentially, I guess, epigenetics and the way that trauma is carried genetically in the body, generation after generation, 
but also in the ways that it creates forms of, of love, no? You know, and I guess that also asks us to rethink the notion of love itself, you know? How does love and intimacy relate to one another? I'm now sort of coming to mind is um, um, a London-based Spanish choreographer called Fernanda Munoz Newsom. And she's been operating a lot with, within the contemporary art space alongside, you know, people like Jamila Johnson-Small, who has uh, now actually is the resident here at the Copius Bau. And they've, they've worked considerably together. And she's, her practice has been focusing a lot on, on intimacy and to, you know, how to move the body in forms of proximity and touch that challenge this idea of proxemics, right? The, the distances that you're required to keep in different cultures and different cult, uh, c- uh, c- cultures, continents, and so on. And, and that at the same time, you know, what, what is achieved by the sense of touch? So, I, yeah, again, I, I don't really have a, a vocabulary for it, but I think that there's something in these three references that that come to mind, and I'm sure there, there's many more, that create a form of effective labor that resonates through the body, right? And creates different conditions and possibilities for the, for the future. I wonder, however, if, you know, going, because uh, Chris, you were also talking about the institutional aspect and the scope and scale of this work within an institutional setting. A lot of the work that I do is also to, related to governance. And I'm, I'm very interested in leadership development <laughs> within institutional settings and organizational development as well. Uh, a lot of this, you know, sometimes is very basic questions like what is the fee structure? How are we paying artists and collaborators? Are we updating these fee structures with inflation or are they the same for the past five years? You know, how are we responding to, to the economic conditions of our world? But often this can be extrapolated to ways of working collegially. And, so, and I'm, I'm using collegially here because I think sometimes it's not possible to create intimacy with every colleague that you have within an institution. Absolutely creating connection, but intimacy maybe is it, it requires a different labor. I think, you know, going back to this notion that we oftentimes come romanticize ideas of collaborative work and collective work and the possibility of achieving this without having the tools and resources to do so. A lot of these tools and resources have to do with emotional reactivity and have to do with simple neurobiology and neuroscience. So the way that you know our brain, brains are wired as a kind of the, the standard <laughs> wiring mechanism is the survival mode, is the freeze-free, uh, freeze-flight, Let's um, say fight, freeze, flight, yeah. And a lot of times, this is what we carry into schools. Then we carry them to universities. Then we carry them to our workspaces. And sometimes it has the the the, the practices are quite simple. Take a deep breath. You know, don't don't react. Uh, respond. And I say they're, they're simple because they sound simple, but they are not, they're, they require labor. <laughs> There's a practice that needs to happen constantly. 
And sometimes in, in, in cert, with certain colleagues, that's more difficult than, than with others. You know, we often hear about forms of uh, uh, ex extraction that are happening within, you know, curatorial hierarchies that are concerning and problematic when the kind of discourse that is being put up front on public view is on care and repair and so on. So how do you reconcile those realities with the, the working processes within institutional spaces? I think, it, yeah, again, it's the inner and the outer work. For me, it has a lot to do with that. Yeah, that it is so true. Like that, this kind of like the the labor conditions, as uh, as you, but you've articulated it so lovely that I feel like I'm going to butcher it. Is like are quite often out of step with you know the thematic of so like um how yeah to uh, you're very right it, it it can be about connection but not necessary intimate uh, an intimacy with a colleague or but ha but also like it's interesting to think about like where are the boundaries within the work that we do and this is something that we talk about quite a lot amongst ourselves and also in in past um, conversations with other curators is like the boundary of you know friendship within the uh, within the art world like and, oh. and 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 our colleagues and you know uh, sometimes one can misinterpret a working relationship for a friendship and and then but also how to then kind of give space to friendship then within the actual exhibition itself or the public program and also like how important these sort of connection like healthy connections are for for mm -hmm. us that are con like you know you said you've done 71 events like you know you know you're in constant dialogue in conversation with people but and I you know but at what point does your social life and your personal life kind of get left behind and yeah, there's many uh, many of others more that I wanted to say, but now I'm just monologuing. I don't have a question; yeah. it's more of a comment. Um, but but I, I suppose also thinking about I don't know if you've ever read Alfonso Lingus's community of those who have nothing in common. No, I haven't. It's pretty good. It's from the '90s, though, so it's very much of the '90s. But he talks about like how. In one of the one of the texts, I can't remember specifically the the, the 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 title, but how like when if we do not have the words to speak, at least we have touch, you know, and like you know the gesture of like you oh. know uh, being able to caress and hold, but then also like we cannot do that within the pandemic context, but also we can't do that necessarily in a work context, you know, like that, that the actual, if we do not have the words to speak, can we actually touch the person next to us? Where, you know, thinking about the boundaries in, in that sense, like, yeah, I don't know. I've just kind of gone on a whole trajectory. I am also a very associative person. <laughs> <laughs> You raise such interesting points, and uh, and and it's much more fun to 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 converse than being in the in the inter interviewee position. It, it reminded me of Pilvi Takala's film *The Stroker*. It's a work that is filmed in uh, a co-working space in London, and so you have all these people with nothing in common, right? These different companies with different skills and scopes 
inhabiting one in the same space. And within this company, the, 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 within the co-working space and the direction of the co-working space, there was someone who was very interested in contemporary art, but specifically performative practices. And somehow they invited Pilvita Kala to come and do, and do a new work. And, you know, within her practice, she, she assumes these identities that are meant to question the conditions and the, and the circumstances of the, the spatial or the, the labor settings in, in which she's in. So in this case, I think that she was a sort of a mental health expert or, you know, someone who was coming from that background and bringing wellness and well-being into the co-working space. And so the video is, is, uh, is incredibly funny because you see her, has a lot of humor, of course, you see her just going around and asking people, how are you? And touching, you know, sort of touching uh, in the back of the shoulder or in the, in, in the arm, no, in the upper arm. How are you feeling today? And you see the strangest reactions and people really sort of like appalled on the one hand and other people feeling like, oh, recognized you know, acknowledged. And uh, it's, it's so interesting that, you know, it probably relates to this, the neurobiology of emotional reactivity, perhaps, or perhaps it doesn't, but there is something about that nonverbal communication that we've been, yeah, that there's a scarcity of within a pandemic context, which opens up very interesting questions with regards to the politics of workspaces. I think there's also, you know, cultural context, right? So at the moment I'm working as a curator for TBA 21 and we have offices in Madrid, Vienna and Madrid, uh, <laughs> Vienna, Madrid and Venice. And so whilst I'm based in Berlin, uh, part of my routine is to travel to one of these uh, spaces monthly and to work with the colleagues. And these are, you know, very different cultural contexts from one to the next. So very different ways of working, very different ways of understanding priorities, urgencies. Um, yeah, very different tasks as well. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting for me also. So the, the project that I'm developing for, for TPA is a long-term one, and it's uh, leading up to a new research institute for uh, art, social and environmental justice. And in the lead up to that, it will still take us a few years to, to bring that into fruition. But in the lead up to that, there's a, a, another multi-platform research, uh, multi-platform research series and also commissioning series. So that, that will be unfolding in the next three years. And it has, a, again, sorry if I'm repeating myself, but this idea of understanding environmental and social justice as interconnected and deeply intimate to to one another and not these sort of two different spaces that we need to mitigate with action. If there is climate disruption is because there are social injustices that have been perpetuated over centuries. And I'm very interested in, in collaborative research. So the center is also working, it has a, I'm developing a number of partnerships with different universities in order as well to create an understanding of or a critical language for research itself, right? Because a lot of the times we speak about research and artistic research and curatorial research and 
we don't really acknowledge the violences that have been committed in its name, you know, for the advancement of science, the advancement of empire, evangelization, and so on. And I'm interested in understanding, you know, how different ways of knowing that are vernacular, indigenous, utopian, new, different, that come from the black radical tradition, or they come from a completely different set of circumstances, they are based on difference, not only because there is a radical alterity that was enacted for them to exist as a kind of foundational violent rupture, but they're also in recognizing these differences and dissonances we can create conversations. To create those conversations, we need to be open to, to, to that difference. Right? If you bring together a, a set of black radical thinkers with um, Buddhist, uh, Thai Buddhist agricultures and into conversation, I'm sure that whatever is going to come out is going to be incredible. But, you know, in that mobilization, the, the care and understanding from the different perspectives, perspectives, histories and experiences, that needs to, we need to create holding space for that. And that's perhaps a form of intimacy with the discourse and with the experiences. It is perhaps a form of, of care. It is certainly a kind of curatorial care connected to the um, invitation. And what else? <laughs> I think I, think I, I got lost. I'm, I'm like imagining this dialogue right now, <laughs> which would be pretty cool. I'm wondering if we should get to our last question. Well, there's a couple of questions that we still have that we haven't asked you, but I feel like you have a whole network or webbing of references that you draw from in many of your projects. But I wondered if there was, you know, anyone that you really admire or uh, look to in your work throughout all your, you know, in your practice generally, or or maybe you don't, maybe it's this very rich network someone that influences you it could be a curator it could be an artist it could be neither there's definitely many people that have influenced me over my intellectual development and that trajectory uh, of curatorial work in different ways you know for example with regards to exhibition making Anza Franke has been a mentor and someone who I uh, have learned a great deal with, with regards to thinking, you know, then you can sort of segment and uh, partition the, the many interests and sort of trajectories that that leads to. But I think I'm more interested in, um, and with regards to artistic practice, there's certainly people who have inspired me for an incredible amount of, uh, of, of time and that you just keep looking into their practice and discovering more and sort of uh, wanting to continue uh, dialogues and, and building those conversations. But I'm really interested in the politics of citation and, and referencing as a, as a feminist undertaking, but also as a, a form of intellectual accountability, but also as a way of creating these intergenerational, transtemporal, transhistorical webbings and networks of, of references. So in a way, I think that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be, to be inspired 
many times, <laughs> sometimes during one day <laughs> and sometimes over the course of, of, of a week and to, and to bring those conversations and those, and those particular points of, uh, of, of portals of inspiration into written um, public programming, exhibition mediums and so on. Yeah, sometimes I think it has yeah to do with this with this forming of uh, of, of an intellectual constellation and, and, and community, living and otherwise. Yeah, and some and non-human as well, right? I, I, perhaps your dog is you know a constant source of inspiration and creativity. Do you have a non-human influence? Plants. Oh yeah, I do yeah, have like a ter- tremendous amount of house plants around me. I need to have them, and then. I feel like I exist in symbiosis with them, you know, the kind of like, I love watching them, taking care of them, spending hours removing some bugs and infestation and trying to cultivate them. I think that's plants. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, that's like in my home environment, but I also really like to go to... Like the mountain. Like the mountains. Yeah. (laughs) Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, same, same here for me. And also as a response, I think, to to the art world and to the, our ways of working, I really found solace in, in plants. And, and uh, of course, you know, living in Germany, I also have the ability to go to a forest very quickly on the bike. But yeah, no, I'm surrounded as well by green and vegetable life. And it, it has been, it is a, a space that I constantly go back to also as a productive intellectual space. But as a material space, you know, you dig your hands on, on the soil and, you know, you're connected in a way that you're not connected through your rubber shoes or by typing on plastic keyboards, right? Uh, so, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. In the next episode, we interview Paul O'Neill, where we talk about accumulative exhibition models and the exhibition as an archive and as a site of production. If you have feedback, we'd love to receive your email at I hope this message finds you well at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at I hope this message and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the artist duo Momuno S and sound engineering was done by Nick Thomas. Here's my sense, I hope this message finds you.